at the new creation. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at Revelation 21 and 22. Ready? Here we go. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this class and um, that we've been able to study so much of your word together the last two years. Um, I pray that as we look at this passage, which is the culmination of everything that we've looked at and studied so far, that you would help bring to our minds the things that we've already seen and learned in the scriptures, and that you would make these two chapters at the end of Revelation very sweet to us. Make us into people of hope who look forward to the new heavens and new earth, and because we're looking towards this place where righteousness dwells, make us into people who pursue righteousness here in the present. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your promise that you are making all things new. And we look forward to joining each other in this place where you are and where there's no tears or death or sadness or pain because the former things have passed away. We pray these things in the name of the crucified and risen Jesus. Amen. So um, yesterday we talked about how the new heavens and the new earth kind of remind us of Eden. They kind of remind us of the temple, because remember, the tabernacle and temple were kind of uh, new versions of Eden, where God dwelled. They were supposed to look like the garden. But the storyline of scripture is not, we were in Eden, we lost Eden, and God gets us back into Eden. That's not the storyline of scripture. The storyline of scripture is a lot better than that. The storyline of scripture is that we started in Eden, and then humanity sinned. And that close relationship and walk with God that we were made to have, we lost because of our sin. But throughout the history of scripture, God spoke through his prophets and and he gave the law and he gave revelation. And finally, he gave Christ. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life in communion with God that we should have lived but didn't. And he deserved all the glories that we read about concerning the new creation. All of the blessings of this place is what Jesus deserved because of his obedience. But he goes to the cross and he dies with the sins of the world upon himself, taking our place, our curses, the judgment reserved for us to take our sins away. He was treated as we deserve to be treated so that we can be treated like he deserved to be treated because of his substitution in our place on the cross. All of these blessings of the new creation now fall to us. Christ was raised from the dead once and for all, defeating sin and Satan and death. And now he's making all things new and he's inviting us to live for the age to come, even in the present. This is a place of righteousness, a place of peace, a place of walking with God. And all of those things are things that we can have in part in the present. So we live for these things in the present and we look to the future with hope that Christ will return and will bring this place to us at his second coming. Now, as we're looking at Revelation 21, um, the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, um, there's a specific part of it that John is talking about. So he's standing on a mountain and up in the heavens, there is something that comes out of the heavens onto the new earth. And, and what is the thing that John sees descend from heaven to earth in Revelation 21? Yeah, this thing that's called the new Jerusalem. Now, if the reading that we've taken of Revelation is correct, 
Revelation is largely a, crit, a critique or a criticism of the old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, the city where Christ was crucified, the city that persecuted the prophets and the apostles has been laid waste. Babylon has fallen. But now there's a heavenly Jerusalem that is coming from heaven down to earth. And if we look at this text, the new Jerusalem is described in a very unique way in verse 2 of chapter 21. It comes down from heaven, from God, prepared as a what? A bride that's adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is a city, and it's going to give us descriptions of this city, but uh, you've, you're familiar with this. Chattanooga is a city, but around election time, things will be said like the city of Chattanooga has elected so-and-so to be their new mayor. The term Chattanooga can refer to the geographical place, the city, but it can also refer to the, the people, the Chattanoogians, right? I don't like that. You don't like that? Have I told you guys before that my grandpa um, gets since, um, before he lived here, um, the first time I think that he came to Chattanooga, he flew out of Cincinnati. And so he gets the endings of those names confused even now that he's lived here for, for decades. He was from here originally and then moved and then came back. And, and so, like, um, he flew from Cincinnati to Chattanooga once, and it's, like, messed up. The, they're just both big sea cities, right? So he calls it Chattanooga and Cincinnati. <laughs> I, just, I think it's wonderful. I love, I love hearing that. So um, the New Jerusalem is a city, but it's also the people. It's the people that are the bride of the Lamb, those that enjoyed that wedding feast that we looked at yesterday in Revelation 19. And the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and it is now on earth. But, but really, as we read chapter 21 and chapter 22, the way to really think about the new Jerusalem, you can take this image. I think a better one is kind of this. New heaven, new earth, and right here kind of meeting in the middle is the New Jerusalem. And I'll explain why I think that this is a better picture. But what we're going to see in today's lecture is that basically the New Jerusalem brings heaven to earth. It is heaven on earth. You guys know the Lord's Prayer, right? We pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in. This is the fulfillment of your prayer. This is what you're praying for every time you say the Lord's Prayer. This is where we'll see that happen. The New Jerusalem is made up of the glorified saints, those who have believed in Jesus and had faith in his name and have overcome sin, the world, and the devil. But who else lives in the new Jerusalem? Who dwells there? Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is great because it's the place where God is and it's the place where our souls get to go to be with God. But God comes down with the bride in the new Jerusalem and dwells there with them on earth as it is in heaven. The New Jerusalem is a place where heaven and earth kiss. It's a place where they meet. It's a place where earthy people, us, 
dwell with the heavenly being, God, for all eternity. So if you ask the question, are you going to spend all eternity in heaven or on earth? The answer you could give is yes. You'll be living on the new earth, but the new heaven is there. It's a place where the two things meet. Let's start describing this new Jerusalem because it's absolutely wild, the description that's given. Now, remember that John is speaking in very symbolic terms. So what we need to do as we read the description of the new Jerusalem is think about what does the symbolism mean? We don't always need to take it literally on face value. So here's an example. Uh, He says in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the what was no more? Oh man, no surfing in the new earth. Don't think that's what it means. I think that there can still be oceans and seas there. Whenever it says that the sea was no more, though, um, the sea in scripture is usually a good or bad symbol. Bad. Bad. What does it represent? Judgment, and where did the beast come from in Revelation? Yeah, the dragon has his no good, very bad, horrible day, and he goes to the sea because he's very bummed out, and then his friend comes up out of the sea and is like, hey, man, um, you know, the sea is a place that represents judgment and chaos and things that are opposed to God. It's the place in Daniel and Revelation where the enemies of God and of God's people come from, and what it's telling you is that those things don't exist anymore. Those things are done away with now. There's no sea there in the sense that the sea represents things that are opposed to God and his people. Persecutors, unclean things, chaos. Those things don't have a place in God's new earth. Will there still be beaches and surfing and stuff? I think so, probably. Maybe, um... You know, I, 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 think, I think that the new creation is a place where there's a lot of animals. One of my professors at Bryan has, like, this weird obsession with the idea that he might be able to take the Loch Ness Monster for a walk in the new creation. He talks about this with some regularity, and I just sit there and nod and say, okay. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I think that there are still seas and oceans, but you see here that sea is being used symbolically to represent chaos, things opposed to God. Those things don't have a place here. Um, other things that don't have a place in verse four, there's no tear or death or mourning or crying or pain because these former things have passed away. Let's start thinking about the description of the city. Now, um, what shape is the new Jerusalem and what verses do you see that show that it's a cube. And where do you learn about that? Yeah, 2116, the city lies four square. Its length and its width are the same. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So the New Jerusalem, yes. Didn't you say, like, whenever someone measures something, that's for judgment? Uh, it's often for judgment. I don't think the context allows for that right now. Yeah, it's just trying to give a description here. A lot of times in the prophetic books, there's like a a measuring rod that's taken and it bullseyes, right? Here, I don't think that that's the case. Um, He's, um, and and it's not a prophet that's measuring anything, which is what it usually is, like Amos and John. This is an angel that's measuring it. Um, So I do think it's different. So, So this city is a giant cube. 
And that is very meaningful. Because in Scripture, there is one other cube. And what is it? The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple, the place in the temple where God's presence dwells. This entire city is a massive Holy of Holies, and all of God's people live there with God and with the Lamb. Now, whenever I say that it is a massive cube, it says it is 12,000 stadia. And a stadia, so I'm going to let you guys, you guys got calculators on you, or phones that have a calculator. Um, 12,000 stadia, one stadia is, um, one stadia, oh my gosh, all my markers are dead, uh, equals 607 feet. So, you guys don't have calculators, that's fine. I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, the New Jerusalem 12,000 Stadia comes out to, drumroll please, 1,380 miles. That's bigger than the moon. So, to put this in perspective, it says that this is a cube. So, height, length, and width. 1,380 miles. If you go from Bryan College to Winnipeg, Canada, that is 1,380 miles. If you go from right here straight up, uh, you're like, I'm trying to remember how many times higher than the International Space Station that is. You would travel to and from the International Space Station multiple times before you went 1,380 miles. Yeah? So what does that mean by having it be that, like, high? Like, obviously we don't know, but, like, are we thinking, like, skyscrapers? So, like, we're into space, like, way into space. Um, if, you, if you took this cube and you have the moon, all right, here's, your, here's the moon, um, the corners of this cube would stick out of the moon. Okay? Now, the walls of the city, what are on the walls of the city? Um, if you look earlier in verses, like, 13, what are on all the walls of the city? There's three on each side. The three gates. Yeah, three gates on the north, west, east, and south. So 12 total. All right? So what do you think we're supposed to get from the fact that this city is a giant cube and that the walls are that high? What's never going to happen? Going to be destroyed. Never going to be destroyed. Never going to be invaders. Nothing is ever going to get in that shouldn't get in. It's a place of safety. But I think that the main point in having the shape of the city like this, I don't think that we should think about this literalistically, like, oh man, this giant cube will one day fall out of the sky, and then that will be the new Jerusalem. I think what the Lord is trying to communicate to John in this vision is how many people could go into the Holy of Holies every single year? One. One. The high priest. This is a massive Holy of Holies that is able to house all the people of God. So that they can not just come into his presence once a year, but can live in his presence forever. 
The New Jerusalem is described in Edenic terms. Uh, It talks about how there are 12 precious jewels there, and the streets of the city are like pure gold. If you look back at Genesis 2, where it describes Eden, a lot of the materials that are talked about in Revelation 21 were also materials that were present in Eden. And so it's trying to explain to you that this is a paradise-like place. It's an Edenic place. But Eden was a garden, and this is not a garden anymore. It is a city. God's people have been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. And now they live in this giant... Uh, Edenic glorified city. Some other ways that it's better than Eden. Um, Verse 23. What does the city not have? It doesn't have a sun or a... Why does it not have sun or moon? Yeah, God's light is is giving it light. And it says that... um, It says a little bit further down. um, In chapter 22, verse 5, they'll have need, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they'll reign forever and ever. The beginning of that verse in verse 5, night will be no more. So, how often does God shine and give light to this city? All the time. Now, in Eden, you had days. Morning, evening, morning, evening. God walked with Adam in the what of the day? In the cool of the day, in the afternoon. Here, this is even better than Eden. There's no need for sun or moon or stars because God himself gives it light. And he doesn't just give it light during the cool of the day. He gives it light all the time. If he left, it would be dark. There's no sun. But he never leaves, so there's no night. Um. It's better than Eden because it needs no sun to give it light. It doesn't have any sort of mediating light. It has God himself. Um, It also does not have a temple. Why is that important? God is the temple. The lamb is the temple. The entire thing is like a giant holy of holies. Um, It also says... In verses 1 and 2, what else is there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22? 22, 1 and 2, what else is there? River and a tree of life. The river of the water of life and the tree of life. What tree is not there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, we already know a lot about evil. We already know... uh, a lot about good because of the gospel. And so what we need now is the tree that symbolizes eternal life. It says that that tree has 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God gives us healing. He gives us eternal life. He gives us the water of life. But probably the best thing that we read about In this city. Chapter 22 verse 4. They will what? See his face. face. That's That's been the promise of all of scripture. Adam and Eve walked with God face to face. 
They sin and they're kicked out of the garden. And from that point forward, seeing God's face has meant what? Death. But along the way, there have been these very interesting stories or little comments that are made. In the book of Exodus, when the people made a covenant with God and said, you will be our God and we will be your people. In Exodus 24, um, let's see, what verse are we at here? Verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. They make this agreement with God. They say, you will be our God. We will be your people. There is this weird crystal-like thing between them and God. If you go back and read the text, he's kind of standing on something that kind of makes him opaque. But they look through this veil of sorts and they do behold God in some way. Now, a little bit later on, the people sin with the golden calf and Moses prays that God won't do away with them. And God says, I'll show them mercy. And then Moses asks a very brave question. He says, God, let me what? See your your glory. And God responds and says, okay, you can see my back, but if you see my face, you will surely die. But the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And he sees God's back and then he goes off the mountain. And what has happened to Moses at that point? Do you remember? His face, was glowing. His face is refracting the glory of God. His face is shining so bright that what do they have to put on him? A veil. A veil because they can't look at him. A little bit later in scripture, they start their wilderness wandering in the book of Numbers. And very interesting text. God speaks to Moses and says, I want the Levites to pronounce a blessing on the people of God. And whenever they pronounce this blessing on the people of God, I will put my name on them. And this is the blessing that he tells the Levites to say to the people. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and lift his countenance his face, upon you and give you peace. Now, if you're an Israelite and the Levites walk up to you and say, may God's face shine on you, how are you going to hear that, maybe? Uh, I don't know about that. It's meant as a blessing, though, but it's a weird blessing. I think the people would have been confused by this because they know Moses couldn't even see God's face, and now there's this blessing put on me, that God would make his face shine upon me, be gracious to me, lift his countenance upon me. But as we keep going into scripture, these weird promises start to take more form. Jesus shows up in the Gospels, and in the Gospel of John, he looks at his disciples, who ask him the question, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He'll say, I and the Father are one. And whenever we look at the face of Jesus Christ, we see the face of a man 
we also see the face of God. And the great promise that is finally offered to us in Scripture is that one day God will make his face shine upon us and will lift his countenance on us. First John chapter 3, 2, or uh, yeah, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Revelation 22 picks up on this and says they will see his face. The moment that we see Jesus's face, theologians refer to this with the term beatific vision. What word do you see in beatific? Beautiful. Beautiful. The beatific vision tries to capture these promises uh, and does so by saying this. 1 John 3, 2 says that whenever he appears, we are going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll see Jesus, and then what happens is we become like Jesus. We see him, and then our sin is taken away completely. We're perfectly conformed to his image. We shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. And the beatific vision teaches that whenever we arrive in glory, whenever we're raised from the dead, whenever we enter into this new creation, we'll look on the face of Jesus. And because of what he's done for us, dying for our sins and taking that away, his face shining upon us isn't a death sentence. His face shining upon us is a life sentence. It will give us eternal life. It's the idea that the vision of Christ that we will see in that moment is so glorious and so beautiful that it will purge us of everything that is not glorious and beautiful. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. The glory that he shared with the Father before all eternity, he says in John 17, is a glory that we will enter into. We'll look like him. We'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. I mentioned as we started um, reading Revelation, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky. He has a very famous line in one of his uh, novels where he says, Beauty will save the world. It's a very Christian idea. Christ will return. And the beauty of his glory will be seen by us, and it'll be our final salvation. We'll see his beauty, and we'll be transformed into that beauty and glory in that moment. And I think that as we read Revelation 21 and 22, and we look at all the symbolisms, the street of gold, and the big city walls that will protect us forever, and the gates, and the jewels, and all of these things, they're all glorious, but their glory is surpassed by the glory of the God that they contain. The thing that makes the new heavens and the new earth so great is that Christ is there and we'll see him and we'll be like him and we'll reign with him forever and ever, according to verse 5. I'm of the opinion that the reason John uses so much symbolism in Revelation 21 and 22 to describe the new creation is because the glories that are going to meet us there surpass anything that he could put into words. So he uses metaphors 
to try to get us some semblance of an idea of the glory that's waiting for us. Does the new creation have streets of pure gold? That's what he says in 2121. The streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. So uh, the question being, should we take that literally or metaphorically? Does the new creation, does the new Jerusalem really have streets of solid gold? My answer to that is yes and no. Um, I think that the metaphor is true or else John wouldn't give it to us. But I think that whatever he sees in the new creation is better than whatever metaphor he can give. The glory of this place surpasses the symbol. So are there streets of gold? There's something better than that. There's something better than that that no eye has seen and no ear has heard the glory that's waiting for us. We'll get there. And it'll look something like gold. It'll be something like gold, but it'll be something better than gold. I think the metaphors here are supposed to kind of pique our curiosity, but, they, but it doesn't satisfy it either. There's a mystery about the new creation that we're only going to see whenever we get there. So... Let's make a couple final comments about Revelation. We said at the very beginning, Revelation 1.1, the title that the book gives itself is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. And I said, if we try to interpret Revelation and never think about how it relates to Christ, we are doing it Wrong. wrong. So European railroad systems or Mushu and the 13 princesses, you know, uh, probably, probably off base there. Um, The way that we interpreted Revelation is we took an early date and we said that Revelation uh, explains and depicts the judgment that Jesus will soon bring on Jerusalem, the city where he was crucified and the city from which his people have been persecuted. He addresses seven churches to commend some of them for their faithfulness and to bring some of them to a place of repentance. John then sees a vision of heaven as the lamb goes forward and receives a scroll and prepares for the judgment. He begins to break the six seals. And as he breaks the six seals, he sends the Roman army marching towards Jerusalem. Before the final seal is broken, though, John has another vision where he sees the faithful in Jerusalem being sealed by the lamb, protected and preserved by them. He then has another heavenly vision where he sees a great uncountable multitude in heaven worshiping the lamb. But then as the lamb breaks the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven. The prayers of the martyrs are taken before God's altar. They're thrown down to the earth and warfare begins. The war that comes is from an army made up of chariots and horses, catapults. But it also has a demonic impetus to it as well. Jerusalem has forsaken the worship of the one true God and has started worshiping demons and participating in sorcery. So God hands them over to the things that they worship. John then has some weird vision about a huge angel in a little scroll. He eats it and it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach, perhaps showing that the city, the destruction of the city he loves is sweet in the sense that this is justice being served, but it's bitter because it is a city that he loves. 
The remnant church is protected by God. They preach and try to call the people to repentance, but not very successfully. But then we get another heavenly vision where there is a great dragon. The dragon uh, persecutes a woman, and as she's about to give birth to the Messiah, he tries to swallow the Messiah up, but the Messiah is taken to heaven and protected. The dragon then follows him there and tries to wage war in heaven, tries to bring accusations against the people of God. But Michael comes out, throws the dragon to earth. The dragon then begins to persecute the church again, tries to kill the woman. Unsuccessful, once again. So he goes and cries at a beach where the two beasts then appear. The first beast is the power of the Roman Empire, and the dragon empowers it and calls people to pledge their loyalty to it. The second beast comes up from the earth, Nero. He looks like a lamb. He's a competitor to the true Messiah, the true lamb. And the people have to decide whether they'll pledge allegiance to Rome or to Christ. Those that take the mark of the beast will be destroyed, but those that take the mark of the cross will be saved. Judgment then falls on Jerusalem in the form of seven plagues and seven bowls of God's wrath, which are poured out by angels sent by the Lamb. John gets another big vision. Um, In chapter 17, he sees that there is a woman that is seated on top of the first beast, and she's dressed like a high priest. She's a persecutor of the people of God who's been an adulterer and unfaithful. She's a picture of Jerusalem. The beast then turns on her, destroys her, and kills her. And then in chapter 18, the saints rejoice as Jerusalem, Babylon the Great, is laid waste because of its sins. But in chapter 19, the faithful appear in heaven with the Lamb. They have a marriage feast with the Lamb. They are one there with him. Chapters 19 and 20, we kind of skipped over because of time reasons. But they depict some final judgment things. Um, they, uh, in chapter 20, there is the millennium where the lamb and the saints have a period of reigning while the, uh, the dragon is contained. But at the end of chapter 20, there's a final rebellion, which the Lord then returns to put to an end. There's the judgment where the wicked are thrown with the devil into the lake of fire. And then 21 and 22 that we just covered, the even better Eden comes to earth. I think it's important to point out as we close that the kingdom is not something that we bring about. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. It's his work, but it's a work that he does accomplish through the church, empowered with the gospel and with the spirit. It's something that we are able to participate in. The first Adam and the first Eve were supposed to multiply uh, and subdue the earth together. And the last Adam and the last Eve do the same. Notice in verse, uh, what is it? Verse 5 of chapter 21. Does Jesus say, behold, I will make all things new? What does he say? I am. What tense is that? present. Is the new creation here right now? No. 
already Remember, not yet thing. it's all is a what? Already not yet. Thing. It's an already not yet thing. Jesus is already in the process of making all things new, but that will only completely happen at his second coming. Right now, though, we are new creations. And right now, we are, in a sense, reconquering the world for Christ as his kingdom spreads. The gods of this world have laid claims to things that Jesus is now counterclaiming and making new. And we get to participate in this as we share the gospel and as we take dominion over sin in our own lives, we're making new creation realities appear more and more. John closes the book in this way. This is chapter 22. Let's read the end of it and then we'll close. Verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. How many times has John done this, by the way? Twice. Twice, right? You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's an evangelistic call. After you've heard this book, the spirit and the bride speak to you and say, come, participate in these things. Rejoice in these realities. Come have the water of life that's offered freely to you. The water of life is Christ himself. And you don't have to do works first. You don't have to make some payment first. He says, come freely as you are. Have faith in me and enjoy these realities that I bring. And so this book is making an evangelistic call to you today. Verse 18, John writes and says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. There we go.
We're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to walk through Genesis through Revelation these past two years. Thank you for the way that the Bible tells one unified story that points us to the Lord Jesus. And Father, we join the prayer of John this morning by saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. We also thank you for the way that the book of Revelation invites us into these realities, that if we go to Jesus, we can have our share in the holy city and in the tree of life. Father, if any of these students that I've had the opportunity to be around these years have not come to the Lord, I pray that they would. And Father, I look forward to the day when we'll be able to gather in this great city together with the tree of life and with our Lord Jesus. Together we'll be able to look on his face. And together we'll be transformed into beings of who this present world is not worthy. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son and for having a great and powerful love for us. And now as we go, we do pray that the blessing of Aaron would be on us. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.